jump into some teaching, but before I do, I think uh, let's just have prayer together and then we'll uh, get into the scripture. Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the morning here together already this morning. Thanks for the meaningful conversations that have happened over breakfast. Um, thank you for the Spirit in this place and your Holy Spirit's presence. And we're, we just sense that you want to do something in our hearts today. God, I pray that our minds would be clear. We'd be free of distractions. And God, I pray that you would uh, speak clearly through your word and through these next few moments together. Um, that the message that you want us to hear and receive, that we would be open to it. And um, that you could do what you you want to do in us, and we just uh, give you thanks for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we've been in this series. We're approaching the end. Just there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. We're approaching the end. And we've said that the church is a big deal. The church is not an institution. The church is not a location. The church is not an organization. The church is a movement. The church is a movement around a very, very simple gospel that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He died on the cross, and he rose from the dead. And it was that very simple message that changed the lives of Jesus' first followers. It was that very same and simple message that changed, uh, that, that caused people to flood the streets of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago uh, in the city where the events took place, and only a couple, a couple months after these events took place. So in this series that we are calling Mega Church, we've been looking at the book of Acts and asking the question, how in the world did the church survive the first century? How did the story and the message of Jesus survive the first century? Why? Why is there even a church today? Why does a third of the current world's population in some way acknowledge that Jesus is sent from God? Most of the people in that third of the world's population believe that he's actually the son of God sent to save us from our sins. How did all that happen? The answer to that question is found in the book of Acts. And as we began the story, we discovered that on, the, uh, on day one of the church, over 3,000 people embraced the message as eyewitnesses of, uh, of the resurrected Jesus shared their story. And as eyewitnesses of a resurrected Jesus, these people went into the streets of Jerusalem and began to proclaim that he was, in fact, the promised Messiah and that he had been risen from the dead. And a couple of, years, uh, a couple of weeks later, the, the crowd had swelled. They went from 3,000 to over 5,000. Within a very short time, possibly 10,000 people, over 10% of the current population of Jerusalem, if we understand what the population was at that particular time. And this groundswell of this new movement disrupted this very delicate balance of power between Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities, the Roman occupiers. Because the, the Romans allowed, uh, I would say the Romans and the Jews allowed each other certain segments of the society and certain control over certain parts of the decisions that were made in that part of the world. But suddenly, now there's this new movement that seems to, seems to on the surface to be anti-Roman because the Romans had crucified their leader. And it seemed to be anti-Jewish establishment because their leader had spoken out about the, uh, Jesus had spoken out against the Pharisees and against the religious leaders. So now instead of a, a dozen, there are over five, six, seven, eight thousand people running around the streets of Jerusalem saying, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's the Messiah. Things are changing. We can never go back to the way it was. <clears throat> so consequently, persecution broke out. And early on in the series, in parts two and three, all the way back in the fall, we skipped over a section of the story, and I did that on purpose because I wanted to go back to that story at the end of the series, and that's where we're almost there today. So we're going to talk about that part today. In Acts chapter 4, the religious leaders had actually dragged Jesus' apostles, the 12 that followed him, um, or the 11, minus the Judas, plus the one that, they, that replaced Judas. Okay? So there are 12 again. Brought them in before the Sanhedrin. They were warned to stop talking about the resurrection, stop talking about the name, 
the name of Jesus, and then they warn them to make their point. Luke tells us in the book of Acts to make their point that they really meant this. They had these men flogged, which meant basically they were whipped and beaten to within an inch of their lives. And after being beaten, they were warned not to speak in the name of Jesus anymore. And here's where we left that narrative and jumped ahead uh, back in November and December. Um, but here's what happened. Acts chapter 5, we're going to kind of... I'm gonna, fly through some passages here. So if you don't get to it in your Bible or on your phone or whatever, we're going to put it on the screen and try to follow along. Acts chapter 5, verse 41. This is after they'd been dragged in before the authorities, they'd been scolded, and they'd been beaten. Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, I never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. So we don't find them huddling together going, you know, how can bad things happen to good people? I don't understand that. And where is God? And I thought all things worked out good. And if God really loved me, we find them instead uh, stepping out in an incredibly bold way to say, in spite of what you tell us, we can't stop talking about what we've seen. A resurrected Savior. We can't stop talking about this message that he was sent from God to be the Savior of the world. Well, as the weeks ensued, the church continued to grow and grow and grow. It multiplied like exponentially, and it overflowed out of Jerusalem into the surrounding areas. And things got so big and so complicated, and began to, the church then began to develop some hierarchy and some structure. And part of that was good and part of it wasn't. But one of the good things that came out of that is leaders surfaced. And they began to take on responsibility. And one of those leaders was a man named Stephen. And we don't know much about Stephen other than that he surfaced basically as what the New Testament calls one of the first deacons, which is basically one of the first servers in the church. He wasn't a big cheese head honcho. He was a server in the church. And Stephen began to speak out boldly about his faith. And because he was not one of the apostles... And he wasn't looked at as an authority. The Sanhedrin and the Jewish leaders thought maybe they could take advantage of this situation. And they had him arrested. They had Stephen arrested. This deacon, server, whatever that, you know. So they they paid people to say things about Stephen that weren't true. And to say uh, that he had said things that he hadn't said. And at the end of their charges, he gives a defense. And his whole defense is written out in the book of Acts in chapter 7. It's one of the longest messages in the whole Bible. And he takes his Jewish audience from the Old Testament all the way to current times to explain that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. And at the end of his message, and I don't recommend this happening at the end of my messages, really, but at the end of his message, people were so stirred, so it was so life-changing and transformational that they picked him up and dragged him outside the city and stoned him. We've talked a lot lately about how do we solicit the right kind of response from people. Um, I think we draw the line at stoning, probably. So um, I, I like a response, but maybe not to that extreme. So I don't know what you have in mind, but just get that out of there right now. Okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Chris and, I, Chris and I are having to stare down. <laughs> uh, next time you hear a church leader talk about how he wants to go back and have a first century church, you know, I, I would say, well, let's take a Wait, stop. Hold on. Uh, let's take a look at what happened in the first century. Let's talk about what happened at the end of Stephen's message, for instance. If that's what you're talking about, I think, no, we can do without that. It's a different kind of invitation. Anyway, Stephen was actually the first martyr once the church had begun. And once he was killed, and once there was no negative... Uh, response from the Romans, it empowered the enemies of the church to begin a widespread persecution of all those that were naming the name of Jesus. We tend to think that the Romans were behind that, but it wasn't. The Jews were behind this because it threatened 
their, their whole belief system. Because this reads so much like history, as Luke explains what happens next, he introduces this period of persecution that broke out against the Christians. And as he introduces it, he introduces to us in sort of a strange kind of, I don't know, foreshadowing kind of way, the character that would begin to make the biggest difference in the story of the local church. Here's how Luke, in the book of Acts, explains it. Here's how he introduces what happens next. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of their killing him, him being Stephen. He, he approved of it, meaning he was kind of supervising the whole thing. Now, Saul is actually the Hebrew name of the man that we know as the Apostle Paul. Paul was, Paul was either a Roman surname because Paul slash Saul was a Roman citizen, or Paul might have been the actual Greek pronunciation of this Hebrew name. But the person Saul was actually standing there when Stephen was stoned and he gave approval and oversaw the whole process. And here's what happens next. So on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles, those are Jesus' uh, 11 followers plus the one they added, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria, which was actually a fulfillment of some of Jesus' last words when he said, you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth. That's in Acts 1. And so because of the persecution, the new disciples, the new followers of Jesus, many of them headed for the hills and they scattered. And they left Jerusalem because the persecution was so intense. Verse 2. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. And the reason that he went from house to house is because that's where the church leaders and that's where the Christians met. They met in homes. And so Paul slash Saul began to just put on a full court press persecution. And actually, he began, he, he began to surface as the number one inquisitor, the number one person who could track down these Christians. His goal and his mission, thinking he was serving God, his goal was actually to stamp out the local church and to put an end to this movement once and for all. Luke tells us that for three years, this went on unchecked. For three years, he continued to persecute the church, arrest Christians, throw Christians in jail. And many of these Christians were put to death. And while he persecuted the church, the church continued to spread. Basically, he would kick over the anthill and the ants would scatter. And he would kick over another anthill and the ants would scatter. And by persecuting the church, he actually drove the message of Jesus out into the surrounding region and outside of Palestine. And at the end of three years of unchecked persecution of the church, something incredible happened that changed everything for Paul and changed everything for the spread of the gospel. And has affected us. Here's what Luke tells us in Acts chapter 9. Verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus. Essentially, he went to the high priest and said, I would like actual written authority to go and continue arresting these Christians, and I would like to start in Damascus. Verse 2. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way... Now, I've got to stop and talk about this for just a second. This is really interesting, and I've mentioned this before in this series, The Way, and I've had some of you asking me about it. At this point in history, Christians were not called Christians. That doesn't happen until later. There wasn't the church with a sign, and they all had their branding all down. It wasn't an establishment. This entire movement, because that's what it was, was referred to as The Way. And one of the questions scholars and theologians have asked for hundreds of years is why? In the, you know, why in the beginning days of the local church did they refer to it as the way, capital W? And the assumption is, or basically the best theory, is because when Jesus taught, he commonly said, as we read in John 14, but he commonly said, I'm the way. I am the way to the Father. In John 14, he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. If anybody wants to come to the Father, he has to come through me. But Jesus came back to that message over and over again in his teaching. I'm the way. I am your access to the Father. 
A smart, sane person who wants to build a following and start a movement doesn't say those kinds of things. Doesn't say, oh, by the way, if you want to get to God, you've got to go through me. That's something, you know, a crazy person uh, would say or an extraordinarily deceived person would say. But apparently this was so central in the teaching of Jesus that when they were trying to just come up with a term, a name, to refer to this group of people, this movement, this thing that was exploding with energy and passion, they just called it the way. So we're still in verse 2. So that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So he's on his way to Damascus. He has letters. He has permission to arrest any Christian he finds and basically drag them back to Jerusalem to be tried. Verse 3. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Perhaps you've heard this story. Luke goes on to say, He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, this is really interesting, Saul! Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, if the church were the church, like most of us think about church, this voice would have said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute it? It being what? The church, an institution, a building, an organization. But here in the first century, as they're beginning to understand what's really going on, the voice says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? which I'm sure he thought, you know, in fact, he says it in just a minute. He says, what do you mean, me? I'm not persecuting a me. I'm persecuting, uh, I'm not persecuting a person. I, I, I'm persecuting an it. It's a movement. It's a thing. It's a problem. It goes on, verse 5. He says, who are you, Lord? It's like, what is this voice? And the response is, I am Jesus, whom, a person, you are persecuting. Implication, what you do to my people you do to me. And the presence of my people is the same as my presence on earth. Let's just pause for a second. You know what this means for us? You've heard me say this before, but I, I don't think it sinks in for us. We, the church, are the representative, representatives or representation of Jesus on the earth. Not individually so much because you're not that good frankly, okay? Collectively, hands, feet, mouthpiece of Jesus on earth. And even in the first century, there was a recognition that this movement, this group of people that was overflowing into the countryside now and all over these region, this region, together collectively represented the person of Jesus. That's why that we still believe that the church is the hope of the world. He goes on, verse 6. Jesus says to Paul, he says, now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. So Saul gets up and he realizes he can't see. He was literally blinded by the light. That's where this phrase comes from. He was blinded by the light. And he stood up and the people around him took him by the arm and they led him into Damascus. I have a feeling maybe they were all converted too. And for three days he sat in someone else's house without being able to see and he just began to pray. And I think he's praying something like, what has happened to me? Someone please explain this. Jesus, where are you now? You know, can you explain what's going on here? And he says, and I'll tell you what you're going to do next. And he's like, what? so what's next? Fill me in. All of a sudden, his entire life, his worldview, his mission, his purpose is completely turned upside down. Meanwhile, there's another guy in Damascus, and his name is Ananias. And this is where his story begins. So verse 10. In Damascus, there was a disciple, a follower of Jesus, not one of the apostles, named Ananias. And the Lord called to him in a vision. Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street, which I love these details, especially in the book of Acts. This is the way Luke writes, because it reads like history, because it is. Straight Street basically means it was a, st a straight street, so they referred to it as Straight Street. That's all it meant. 
and, I, and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And Ananias is thinking, that, I heard what you said. That name rings a bell. He continues, verse 13, Lord, Ananias answers, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem. In other words, are you sure you got the right angle on this? In other words, I don't think, I think he's here looking for me. I don't think I need to be going looking for him. Verse 14, he's come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your, here it is again, name. Verse 15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man... This, this is where the story gets really rich. This is, this is where it starts to make sense. How in the world did the message survive the first century? Here's where we begin to get our answers. He says, go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name, not simply my message, not simply my teaching, but my name to the Gentiles and their kings, oh, and to the people of Israel. And Ananias is like, to the Gentiles? Oh, so this is not exclusively a Jewish message. This is not something just for those who lived in the region. This wasn't just for people who were looking for a Messiah. This is for the whole world. And God chooses the most unlikely candidate in the first century to be the mouthpiece of the gospel to the Gentiles, to us. He says, This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias agrees and he goes and he finds Saul. Can you imagine walking up to that house and standing outside and thinking about ringing the doorbell? This is the man responsible for murdering people I love. This is the man responsible for arresting people, men, women, dragging them out of their house, taking them to Jerusalem, and we've never heard from them since. This is the number one enemy of the movement to which I've given my life. And Ananias knocks on the door. And he walks in, and there's Saul sitting in a chair, blinded. And Ananias lays hands on him, and Luke tells us that something, and Luke's a doctor, okay? And this is how he describes it, that something like scales or something fell off Saul's eyes, and he was able to see, and they prayed together. And he had explained to Saul that God has given you a unique opportunity, a unique privilege, a unique mission, and you're going to suffer greatly for it, but your mission is to take this message, the message of the church, the message of Jesus, to the entire known world in your lifetime. And the scripture goes on to say in verse 19, says, Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. So slowly, more of the followers of Jesus came, peeked in the window, kind of peeked in the door. It's like, there he is. And he's not arresting anyone. And he's not throwing stones at anyone. He's not authoring anyone's death, authorizing anyone's death. He's not dragging anybody off to Jerusalem to be tried. Verse 20, once he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. At once. He'd been a believer for just a matter of days. And all those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? Hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful. He grew more and more bold and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Messiah. Then there's a gap in the story that we don't get in the book of Acts. Because for the next 12, 14, maybe as many as 15 years, Saul essentially disappears from the story. And he speaks here and there, and he shows up here and there. But for the next 12 or 14 years, Saul got his own education. And he began to study and learn and study and learn. He spent some time with Jesus' followers. And he tells us in the book of Galatians that he spent time with Peter. 
a few weeks with Peter, absorbing the teachings of Jesus, absorbing the lifestyle, the life, the miracles of Christ. It says he spent time with James, the brother of Jesus. How cool would that be? And we know he spent time in Jerusalem on at least two occasions, was with the closest followers of Jesus. He just absorbed all that he could about the life and teaching of Jesus. And after 12 to 14-ish years of preparation, he launches out on what we know as Paul's missionary journeys. And for the next 10 or 11 years, he travels through this part of the known world throughout Turkey and Greece from Jerusalem. And during those 10 to 12 years, he stops in each of these cities along the perimeter, along the rim of the Mediterranean, and he actually planted little ecclesias. Remember that word? Little churches, little gatherings, little congregations. And meanwhile, the apostles are huddled together in Jerusalem trying to do one church and trying to get it right. And they had a lot of hiccups along the way. And meanwhile, Paul, on his own, essentially tackled the entire known world around the Mediterranean rim. It's as if he said to the apostles, you guys take Jerusalem, I'll take the rest of the world. For 10 or 11 years, mostly by ship, he traveled in three big circles around this area. And everywhere he went, he would go to the synagogue first. And he would convince as many Jews as he could. And once they would throw him out, in some cases beat him and stone him and have him arrested and left for dead, he would shake off the dust and he would go to the Gentiles in that area. And he'd say, I have some great news. God has brought to an end all the religion that you have had in your lifetime. It's the culmination. It's something brand new. God has spoken, and he has sent his son into the world. He did this in Corinth. He did it in Athens. He did it in Ephesus. All over this part of the world, he went to the major cities first, and he fearlessly and he boldly proclaimed the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then around 55 AD, he was arrested while he was in Jerusalem. He was taken up to Caesarea. He was kept in jail for two years. And, and he let them know that he was a Roman citizen and he wanted to be tried by Rome. So he appealed to the emperor. And after two years, he began this long, dangerous journey from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, where he was under house arrest for two more years. While he's under house arrest in Rome, he wrote some of the literature that's familiar to all of us. He wrote the letter to the church in Ephesus that we know as the book of Ephesians. He wrote the, the letter to the church in Philippi, which we know as the book of Philippians, and many others. Many of his letters have been lost, but those those that we needed to have preserved have been preserved for us in the New Testament. And these letters were written, many, not all, but many were written while they were in prison. Back to these churches, back to these ecclesias, these gatherings that he had established all around the rim of the Mediterranean Sea. After two years in Rome, he was released. Then he's promptly rearrested in the year 66, spent about a year and a half again in prison, this time in a real dungeon in Rome. Nero had, was now the emperor. We all know Nero's fondness for Christianity during this part of history. And in the year 67, probably early one morning, his prison doors were opened. Guards took him out silently, walked him outside of the city. Very quickly, Paul knew where they were going because it was a part of the city where executions took place. Without any ceremony, with no eyewitnesses, no one knows exactly where this spot even is. He was executed, he was beheaded, and his life ended. And a year later, in 68... Nero commits suicide for fear of being assassinated by his followers. And today, people name their dogs Nero and their sons Paul. If you're named Nero, I apologize. <laughs> Here's the significance of that. That was really insensitive, I know. but <clears throat> Very, very, very bad things happen to very good people. And God is still God. Very, very unexplainable things can happen to people who are extraordinarily faithful, and God is not rocked by that. God is not changed by that. There's no mystery to Him. This is just part of the story. 
It's a part of human experience, and it's been part of the story from the very beginning. And never throughout the book of Acts do we find Christians huddled together, afraid that God has lost control, afraid that maybe God doesn't love them anymore, afraid that maybe they've offended God because, look, the Jewish authorities are after us. We don't find any of those you know, American type of complaints. What we find is a bold, bold commitment to the person of Jesus and to the life-changing message that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, the promised Messiah. And it was Paul's boldness and it was his courage to get on a boat time after time after time and visit many of the pagan cultures that were anti-everything he had to teach. But he consistently did that, and it's one of the primary reasons that we know about Jesus today. It's one of the primary reasons that the message of the gospel got outside Palestine and eventually spread all over the world. And it was really the beginning of the global church. It was the beginning of the Gentile church. And consequently, even though the persecution heated up intensely around the city of Jerusalem, Christians all around there began to thrive and multiply. And Christianity spread and it spread and it spread. In addition to being a missionary, there was something else that Paul was, that he did that was extraordinarily important for you and me. He was a very educated, probably wealthy man, but he was very educated. And because he was a Roman citizen, he had access to things that some of his Jewish brothers did not have access to. He had access to education and they didn't have access to that. And because of his education, and I think he was just a brilliant man anyway, and for our benefit, to extrapolate from Christian Judaism what needed to be transferred to Gentile believers like us, or Gentile, Gentile people like us, he said he continually got into trouble because he had a Gentile version of Christianity. See, the thing that God raised him up to do was to help those of us who don't have an Old Testament background, who aren't you know, brought up in Judaism, who aren't looking for a Messiah, uh, the, it's, it was for the people in his day who had none of that, to understand what is the essence of the gospel, what is the essence of this message, what is the takeaway, what's the bottom line, what is the irreducible minimum of the message. And over and over and over, the Apostle Paul would go into Gentile regions, especially in Athens and Ephesus, and say, if you are not Jewish, if you have never understood the Old Testament, here's the thing you have to understand. Here's the new thing that God has done in our midst and in our lifetimes. So in the book of 1 Corinthians, he gives us this synopsis of the message, the takeaway for all of us who don't have Jewish background and Jewish roots, okay, who are non-Jewish people, who don't have an Old Testament background and weren't raised looking for a Messiah, In this passage, he defines as clear as anywhere in the scripture exactly what the gospel is, exactly what the message of that had to be be transferred from generation to generation. Here's how he describes it in 1 Corinthians. This is a letter that he wrote during the time when he was traveling around the world to to these ecclesias, these gatherings, the church. Actually, this is to the church in Corinth. Here's what he says. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, I want want to remind you, because he's already been there, and now he's reminding them, he's writing to them. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. So he's about to define for us what is the gospel. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you've taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you've believed in vain. For what I received, that is what I received from God and what I received from the apostles and what I received during all of that preparation for ministry, I passed on to you as a first importance. So here's the most important thing. If you forget everything else, he says, if you lose sight of everything else, if you don't understand anything else, if you're wondering how in the world do I explain to somebody who has no frame of reference about what I believe and what the gospel of Jesus is, he said, here it is. Here's what's of most importance. For what I received I passed on to you is of first importance. Here it is, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried 
that's how you know that someone's died, because uh, they've been buried. And you'd bury dead people. So if there's any question about whether Jesus died, he was died and he was buried. This is important. That he was buried and that he, raised on the th- he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter, right. He appears to Peter. Then to the twelve, the twelve disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. Maybe you didn't know that. That, that Paul realized and discovered in talking to all these people in Jerusalem while he was kind of being educated in, in, the, in the way, that there were, there were points after Jesus' resurrection, he didn't appear to just one here and one there and two here and three people here. And, and, you know, so people could just think, well, you guys had some kind of mysterious vision and you all kind of got together to get your story straight. No, he says, you need to understand, you Corinthians, that there was a time when the resurrected Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at the same time. Oh, this, this next part. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living. Now, this little piece of document was written probably in the early 50s A.D., or maybe 55 at the latest. So about 20 years after these events took place, and he says to the Christians in Corinth, this resurrection that I know it's so hard to believe, it's so hard to get your arms around that, it's hard to embrace the fact that somebody would rise from the dead, but you need to know that there are over 500 people at one time who saw the resurrected Jesus. And if you want to get yourself a boat ticket and go to Jerusalem, you can find most of those people. They're still alive walking around the day. Oh, though some have fallen asleep, he says. So some of them died in the meantime. Then he appears to James. Then to all the apostles, I love this, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Paul, why would you say that? I mean, you spent 10 or 12 years of your life traveling around dangerous parts of the world proclaiming the message of the Messiah, that the Messiah has come. He says, because I persecuted the church of God. That word again, I persecuted the gathering, the ecclesia, the movement of God, I persecuted But by the grace of God, verse 10, but by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace to me was not without effect. Yeah, you might say. He says to the Corinthians, I don't know why God chose me to bring this message to you. Of all the people that, you know, that should have been chosen to make a difference and to plant these ecclesias and to these gatherings, I'm the least of everyone that God could have chosen, but he chose me, and he chose me by his grace. I think he chose me to show everybody how huge his grace is. It was central in the message of the the Apostle Paul. So he he brings to us in no uncertain terms, those of us who don't have an Old Testament background, those of us who weren't raised looking for a Messiah, those of us who weren't well-versed in the Scriptures, he brings to us the bottom line, the thing you can't ignore, and here it is. It's four simple statements. Christ died for our sin, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. That's it. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. That's the irreducible minimum. If you aren't sure how to share your story and how to share the gospel because you think it's just something super complicated, here it is. I got an idea. Let's say this together. Can we handle it? You feel like a theological scholar today? Here we go. This is it. This is the gospel according to Paul. Let's read it. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. Some of you sound like you're convinced of that. Like somehow it's made a difference in your life. That was really, I heard some 
energy and life in that. So we're going to do it one more time and give the others a chance to catch up. So here we go. Christ died for our sin. He was buried. He was raised. He appeared. So here's what he's saying. Here's what he's saying. I, look, he's like, look, I, I, know, I understand, you know, was it seven literal days of creation? And what happened to the dinosaurs? And what about the flood? And I don't know if I can. Don't worry about that, he's saying. Here's what you need to know. What you need to know is that Christ died for your sin, and he was buried, and he was raised, and he was seen. He appeared. Oh, I know, but like I was like reading like Revelation, and there's like all these horses and seven-headed dragon with three tails and fire, and the world comes to an end. Can you explain? We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Like, hold on. We'll get there. But here's what you need to know. Christ died for our sin, and he was buried. That's how we know he was really dead. And he was raised, and he appeared. And that's how we know that he, how we know that he was raised from the dead is that he appeared to people, hundreds of them at one time. He died on the cross for your sin. He was buried. He was raised, and he appeared. And yes, you've got a lot of questions. That's perfectly fine. And yes, maybe you've never read the whole Old Testament. That's fine. And you can't really put together all the different accounts of the resurrection, whatever. There are lots of questions and you don't understand certain parts of the Bible. Uh, some of it is so complicated and you think you have to go to seminary and sometimes, you know, everybody's where they need to be in their Bible and you haven't even figured out which part of, which half of the Bible you should be in. There's just so much information. The Apostle Paul says, okay, 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 here's the thing, here's the, here's the thing you've got to know. Here's, here's the bottom line. Here's the part you just can't ever lose sight of. <clears throat> that Christ died for your sin, he was buried, he was raised from the dead, and he appeared. That's the gospel. That's the starting point. That's not the point you go to after you've got all your questions answered. This is the thing we wrestle with. And I would just say, if you're wrestling this morning with whether Christianity is true or not, or whether there's anything to this, please don't look exclusively at the lives of Christians who have disappointed you. Oh, I know, that's a hurdle. I get it. But that's, don't let that hold you back. If you're wrestling with where, what you really think about the claims of Christ and what Paul is saying here about Jesus, don't, don't attend a church that puts you to sleep. I know it's warm in here, so I'm trying, but don't worry about the fact that your parents, you know, brought you up to be a Christian, and then they got divorced, and your dad ran off with somebody else, and now they hate each other, so what's that all about? Don't get, don't get hung up on that. All that stuff can be a distraction, and all that stuff can be, can be kind of looked at and wrestled with later. But if you're going to wrestle with Christianity, if you're going to wrestle with the truth of the gospel, wrestle with this one thing. Did Christ die for your sins? Was he buried, was he raised from the dead, and was he seen? That's it. Let's just hang there for a while. That's the starting point. It's the starting point and it's the stopping point. It's the gospel. It's the foundation. That's what it's all about. And the message that he took from Jerusalem after he you know, disseminated through all the different stories and all the things that he learned from Jesus and all of his Old Testament background and all that he'd been brought up to believe as a boy, Paul would say to the believers in, in Corinth and in Ephesus and all over the world, and to us, say, so here's what all you need to know, that Christ was sent into the world to die for your sin. He was buried, he rose from the dead, and he's appeared. So here's the challenge for you and me. So ask the question, I guess, have you ever embraced that personally?
many of us as children, someone sat down, our parents sat down with us, they explained it to us. We don't, we don't know what they explained, but at that moment in your life, you, you kind of finally got it, that Christ died for my sins and he rose from the dead, and at that moment you entered into a faith relationship with your Heavenly Father. How many of you became a follower of Jesus as a child? I'm just kind of curious. For some of you, it was at a camp. For some of you, it was after a church service. For some of you, it was VBS or Sunday school. For some of you, it was a church gathering. For some of you, it was in your home. For some of you, it was watching someone on television or uh, online or an event you went to. But at some point, the thing that we all have in common, those of us who call ourselves believers and followers of Jesus, that at some point, it kind of dawned on us. And now we understand the whole Bible clearly. Nope. (laughs) No, it's not that we understand the whole Bible. It's not that we can work through all the apparent discrepancies between this account and this account. But it's dawned on us that Jesus died for my sin and he was buried. And he was really dead and he rose from the dead and he's really alive because people saw him. Paul says over 500 people at one time. And if you don't believe me, he would say, go to Jerusalem. They're still there walking the streets, you know. That's what he, that's what he said to the people that he was writing to. It's kind of a unifying theme. It's what we have in common with Christians all over, the, all over the country and all over the world, that Christ is the Son of God, the, li- the living Son of God who died for our sins. He was buried, he rose from the dead, and he was seen. Here's my question for you as we wrap this up. Has there ever been a time in your life, that aha moment for you, where you said, I see it? all right, we stripped everything else down. We're down to this bare bones. I get it. I believe that. I can embrace that. Have you ever expressed to your Heavenly Father, thank you that Christ died for my sins, that he was buried, that he rose from the dead, and that he lives today? And I want to embrace him as my personal Savior. Has there ever been that moment for you? I know you have questions that are so sophisticated that I certainly could never answer them for you in a satisfactory way. But the real issue is what have you done with the gospel? That Christ died for your sins and rose from the dead. If if there's never been a moment in your life that you have embraced that personally, I want to give you an opportunity to have that moment today. Today is a perfect day because you're in the gathering. This is a part of the movement. This is the message that brings us together. If during this message, if even the last five minutes, there was something that clicked in you, that dawned on you, that somehow all the other questions kind of filtered away for now, and we've got some clarity, because there's just this one thing in front of me right now, and you think, you know what, I think, I believe that, then perhaps this is the day for you to embrace this message and to join the ecclesia, the movement of God. Let's all bow our heads in prayer. I want to just lead you through a prayer. You can change the words. Feel free to do that. Say this out loud if you want to. Say it in your heart because God knows your heart. But if you've never had that moment in time where you've accepted the gospel, accepted the person of Jesus as your, as your Savior, I invite you to pray. Heavenly Father, I believe Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world and for my sins. I believe he was buried and I believe you raised him from the dead and that he was seen. This morning, I embrace him as my personal savior. I'm trusting him to provide forgiveness for all of my sin, my past sin, the sins I'll commit this very day, the sins I'll commit in the future. Now receive me into your family. I'm thrilled to join the family of God. It's in the name of Jesus, our resurrected savior, I pray. Amen. Here's what I'd like you to do.
I'd like a response. Perhaps not as emotionally charged as Stephen's response. That would be great. Because um, if you remember what happened to him after they dragged him out from behind the church. Uh, I'd like to give you an opportunity to respond. Somewhere within arm's reach in the chair in front of you, there's a card that looks like this. It says Connect Card. It's a place for you to put some contact info as much as you want to put. But here's what's important. is on the back, there's a place there for you to indicate if you made a spiritual decision today. If you prayed along with me while I prayed that prayer, and you, today was your day. Today was your day to take the next step. Today was your day to say, uh, that? Yes, I'm all in on that. Got lots of questions. Got a truckload of questions. Things that no one's ever been able to explain to me. But that, I'm on board with. Um, just There's a place there for to, to check off kind of maybe where your decision is, and there's some blank space for you to write something there to one of us. Here's what will happen with that. You put that in my hands, Pastor Bob's hands, or put it in one of our offering boxes in the lobby, and that will get to us, and we'll... We would love to have a follow-up conversation with you about that, okay? I would like to play a song, and uh, so listen to this. I'm in. 